Welcome to the Northridge Church Podcast, a weekly rewind of Sunday's talk. Hey, I uh, just want to give a special assignment to uh, on wings here. Let's let's go with Levi over here, and let's go with John. And Levi is already concerned because I didn't give him any warning, but it's okay. I'm not not going to ask you to speak out of turn or anything like that. I'm just what you guys need to pay attention. That if I start doing something strange, and I know that's a tough order to figure out, uh, but you know stuff like if I start reciting, you know, the Gettysburg. Uh, address, or you know, or if I'm just announcing my um, my uh, uh, my shopping list for today, then you need I probably need some medical attention, okay? Because I'm on a concussion protocol right now. That uh, yesterday I had a you know I've had if you've been around for a few years, you know I have a problem with stairs and uh, found myself uh, yesterday I missed the second stair going into going into the garage as Dax and I were headed to uh, set up a water slide in our backyard yesterday and uh, missed that water slide or missed that second stair and went down on my bad knee, the knee that I'd ruptured on the concrete and on my elbow. And then I headbutted, I was successful in headbutting my SUV on the bumper. And uh, as I hit that, as I hit the bumper, I knew I was like, that's, that's probably not good. That's not good at all. And uh, yeah, this is the bumper. And so I'm glad on the thing, I, I, I could praise the Lord that we no longer have chrome bumpers. Uh, this bumper gave, you know, did exactly what it was designed to do. And it, 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 I actually dented. I, the bumper is dented in. But uh, your son-in-law, he, he can't be counting his uh, bank account now because I'm not going to him because I was able to fix it. I got my neighbor and I, we were able to pop the bump, the, the dent out of the bumper yesterday. But again, I just, that, that everything knee, knee's a bit sore, but the concern is just the, the uh, headbutt to the, to the car. Um, you know, the forehead, I always learned in karate, the, the forehead is the, one of the hardest parts of your body, and I proved it yesterday. So anyway, but while I was laying there, and Dax saw it all, and he was, I, I was on the ground, and he just was standing on top of the stairs with his mouth covered and just this look in his eyes like, oh, no, oh, no. And so I immediately got out. While I was rolling to my back, I said, I said Dax, I am fine. I, we don't, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm okay. And his response was, well, then get up. Get up then. And he said, get up. And I said, well, I'm going to lay here just for a minute or two to recover. I need to recover a little bit, but I will be getting up. Give me, give me 30 seconds and I will be up uh, on my feet again. And I was. So, but while I was laying there, a memory popped in. I don't know if it came to my head because of the concussion or what, but I remember a season uh, before Dane and I were dating, before we were together, I was a little bit more um, aggressive and a little bit more adventurous with my ministry style and my, my sense of mission. And one of the things I did several times, probably four trips, I think, is I would go with a group of college students and a group of student missionaries, student campus missionaries uh, from MSU, and we would go down to uh, New Orleans during Mardi Gras season, and we would street preach. 
As a matter of fact, Pastor John went with me one year and had that same experience. We'd be down there and we'd be, I mean, talk about, we were in an in, intense environments, and environments that were completely completely against the Spirit of God. Uh, they were, the, the sense of Antichrist was just pervading in those environments. And in that environment, it, that scene was people, people were coming to Mardi Gras. You know, it was not a family event. It was not a kind of thing of just, hey, let's go see some floats. I mean, the people that were coming to New Orleans and to the French Quarter during Mardi Gras, they all had one thing in common, and that was we have limited time how much sin can we get in, can we squeeze in to a 72-hour window? All the things, how much rebellion can we do? And, and here, John and I are, are, uh, are going into the middle of that, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing that even in those environments, even with the idea of rebelling from God as greatly as you can, God still loves you and God can forgive you uh, if you choose to embrace him, if you choose to... To, uh, to repent and, and call upon his name. Uh, in that environment, there would be a time we would go, we would kind of work our way through the quarter, and we would ultimately find ourselves at some point in Jackson Square. A historic square, it's in front of the courthouse, in front of the cathedral, and uh, in Jackson Square during the daytime, it's beautiful and people would go. If, if you've ever uh, toured New Orleans, chances are you've been to Jackson Square and you've taken pictures of the flowers and all the, the azaleas and all the things that they have out there. But about four o'clock in the evening, it becomes a different kind of environment. And about four o'clock, what you start seeing is there are tarot card readers, palm, palm readers, uh, literally pagans, pagans, people that truly would still worship the old gods, you know, Zeus and, and uh, all of those gods you read about in your history books, uh, the, those deities, those idols you'd read about in the scriptures, uh, Moloch and things like that. These people would worship those idols. And then they, they did all sorts of different types of divination. They would come starting about four o'clock in the afternoon. They'd set up a card table and they would put their, they'd put their uh, shingle out you know, $5, $15, $25 to read your fortunes. And normally the environment would be a very hostile environment because Christians like John and I, we would come in and we would start preaching publicly there. And uh, we would, uh, we would you know, oftentimes be very, there'd be a very much an adversarial uh, feel between us and them and often be shouting matches and it would just be very hostile environment. And it was in that environment that I came across this guy named Jarek. Jarek. Jarek was a man at that time, probably in his late 50s, had an incredibly strong widow's peak, gray hair that came down below his shoulders. I don't, I'm not mocking him here, but you know, this might sound like a mock because it's so different from you or I. He was dressed like he came out of one of those Shakespearean uh, uh, weekends. You know, he had the pirate shirt, the ruffled shirt on. He had leather, leather breeches. You know, they're not even pants. They were breeches, right? He had on riding boots, black riding boots that came up to mid-thigh and just sterling silver on every finger, necklaces. I mean, you know, definitely... It was, it, was, it was gaudy, you know? He looked radically different. He had on fangs on his teeth that 
I don't believe he had his teeth sharpened down. I think they were things that he, he had uh, glued on, uh, extra pieces to augment his teeth. And he was wearing uh, like leopard uh, contacts that made his eyes turn yellow. And I discovered in this as I met Jarek, something weird happened in that for whatever reason, I don't remember how exactly, but we were not shouting it at one another. We were actually talking to one another and discovered some things about the divination industry. Uh, it was much like uh, it was much like the streetwalker industry. Uh, Jarek was basically a pimp in that he owned a lane of of Jackson Square. Uh, obviously, there was uh, no papers in City Hall say that he owned that, but all of those 20-somethings that were giving their fortunes, telling fortunes, believed that Jarek owned a section there and that they were under his protection and that he, uh, he received a part of their pay. He received a part of their, of their income that they would bring in every night and they could stay there under his direction. Uh, he would give them input on how to be better at their craft because he was more experienced. Uh, he was kind of the head wizard of that area, I discovered. And he and I are talking, talking. We're sharing. Uh, he's sharing with me about things and about his concerns. He's being honest about life. And, and I'm able to share with him my experiences and, and pretty Quickly, pretty quickly, we come to the gospel. And, and again, uh, you know, I cannot tell you that after a 30-minute after a exchange that Jarek was ready to bow his head and give his life to Jesus. Uh, but I can say this, that Jarek heard the gospel not in terms of anger, not in terms of we as Christ followers don't like you because you wear leather and because you want to pretend like you're a vampire and because you're uh, telling people's fortunes. Uh, but Jarek, you're a sinner. You're a sinner and you are deeply in need of God's grace, just like I am, just like I am. I'm a sinner as well. And I need God's grace. And I've experienced God's grace. And you can too, Jarek. The end of that conversation was very unique because I had a dilemma that I never experienced in my life and I have not experienced since then. And that was, as I was leaving, I asked Jarek, Jarek, would you mind if I pray over you? And I was honest with him. I, I said, I'm not going to pray God's blessing on your life. I'm going to pray that God's, uh, God's conviction would come over you and you would recognize that what I shared today is not just my opinion, not just my worldview, but the absolute truth of this planet, the absolute truth of creation, and that you would not be able to lay your head on a pillow without calling upon your creator to come and save you. Could, could I pray that over you? And his response, and I, 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 and I truly was just giving him, you know, you, I was like, you have permission to tell me no, and I'll, I'll honor that, and I'll walk away. Now, truth being, I'll still pray it. I'd pray that to the Lord. It just Jarek would never hear me pray that prayer, you know? Um, and he he cocked his head and he thought for a moment and he said, well, you can do that, but I want to read your palm. I had a dilemma, didn't I? I'm like, do I, am I become a part of divination in order for me to pray over him? I had a unique 
dilemma. But, you know, you're not here to hear about my stories. You're here to talk about Daniel. Let's talk about Daniel for a few minutes here. But let's not get lost in this study that we've been in and think that what we're doing is a character study over Daniel because what we're really doing is we're looking at the fact, we're looking at this young Hebrew man, Daniel, who's in the middle of a culture that is totally against him. They are oppressing him. They are prejudiced towards him. And they're actively rooting for his failure. And yet in the midst of this culture, Daniel rises to great authority, to incredible prominence, to influence, to to power. He literally thrives. He is thriving in Babylon. How did this happen? We can just do a very quick read of Daniel and say, well, it happened because God put his favor on Daniel. And that is absolutely, absolutely true. God did put his hand of favor on Daniel. But we also see that in the midst of God's favor, Daniel, under, I believe, God's wisdom and his provision, made some very good choices as well. He made some very good choices that helped him rise to prominence. And I believe that as we look at Daniel, the reason it is recorded is not because he is an outlier uh, that is just a once in a, in a, a once in a millennia kind of person. I believe Daniel serves as a reminder for you and for me that we can all experience his thriving in our world. That you can thrive in the most hostile situations that you could possibly find yourself in. Uh, you know, maybe there are very specific situations that you're in right now and, and you're having to deal with, but the reality is we are all living in a world that is more, that's farther from Christ today than it was 20 years ago. And by all indications, it's only going to get worse. By all indications, our children will be living in a truly post-Christian world where if you feel like you feel a little bit of pressure being a Christ follower in your schools or in your workplaces or in your environments, in your neighborhoods, or maybe on your baseball teams that your kids are on, I promise you that in 25 years from now, it'll be greatly magnified for your children and for my child. So what do we do? How do we conduct ourselves? Where do we go here? Well, we see that Daniel also, I was talking about a a dilemma that I had. Daniel had a very interesting dilemma also. In Daniel chapter 4, we see that the scripture records that Nebuchadnezzar has a second dream. You remember, Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar's notice because he is able to interpret a dream that he has. Well, there's a second dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. It greatly troubles him. It's interesting. If we go to, go to Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and early in chapter 4, it, the scripture is very clear. It says that this dream alarmed Nebuchadnezzar. It made him afraid. It made Nebuchadnezzar afraid. And he goes to his wise counsel. He goes to his magi. He goes to his occult leaders, his occult counselors, and none of them have an answer. So he says, bring Daniel in. Let's let Daniel, Daniel could solve all the other puzzles. Let's see what he says about this dream. Let's see what his God says about this dream. And so Daniel comes in and Nebuchadnezzar tells him, says, I had a dream of this great tree. And he describes this giant tree that the entire world could take notice of because it stretched so high. And he said that this 
tree was so beautiful and its leaves were unlike any other tree in the, all of planet Earth. And its fruit was so abundant that the animals from all around the lands would come to shelter themselves underneath this tree and would feed upon this tree. The birds of the air would flock in and they would nest in this tree and they would feed upon this tree. But then Nebuchadnezzar says, in my dream, a heavenly being comes out and cuts the tree down and he scatters the fruit and he scatters the branches and he scatters the leaves to the four winds of the earth. And the, the animals and the birds, they mourn because they no longer have food. They no longer have sustenance. They no longer have shelter. They no longer have protection. But not only does this tree suffer the indignity of being cut down, this heavenly being comes and puts a metal plate over the stump and binds this stump so that it will never grow again. It won't even rise from the stump. It was an alarming dream for, da for Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, Daniel, what does this dream mean for me? Daniel had a very interesting dilemma that many of us have probably never noticed before. Because Daniel very quickly, and he rightly judges through God's wisdom, that this dream was a dream of judgment, that the tree was Nebuchadnezzar and the, that heavenly being was God himself coming and was going to strike down Nebuchadnezzar's glory, strike down his wealth, strike down his power, strike down his very sanity, and that for a period of time, Nebuchadnezzar would be insane and would be literally sent out to pasture in a field and he would live like a wild man. Now, here is Daniel's dilemma. Very interesting. Daniel, who, remember, was imprisoned by Nebuchadnezzar, who was enslaved by Nebuchadnezzar, who's probably experienced his family being murdered by Nebuchadnezzar's armies, who was emasculated by Nebuchadnezzar, who was forced to study the occult arts and the dark arts by Nebuchadnezzar, who was enslaved by Nebuchadnezzar, and now who has been serving uh, Nebuchadnezzar for a period of many years has a chance to, he experiences, and God taps Daniel on the shoulder to give judgment and say, Daniel, you have the ability now to proclaim my judgment, my righteous judgment on him. Daniel could have said, Nebuchadnezzar, let me tell you something. You're an evil man. You're a jerk. You're a terrible human being, and you're getting yours right now, and I'm glad to be able to tell it to you. That's one thing Daniel could have done. Or the other, the other side, Daniel could have been truly sad for a friend of his, for a man who he has a relationship with, for a person who is his supervisor, who is, is, is his boss. What, what would you have done? If you had been in Daniel's position, would you share God's righteous judgment with a certain level of indignation? a certain level of joy, a certain level of glory, a certain level of I'm going to get to be able to be on the front row to watch your demise and I'm excited about it. Or would you have been sad and been humble? Well, let me tell you and let's just take a quick look at Daniel chapter 4 verse 19. And this is what Daniel's choice was. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, which I forgot, John pointed this out, Daniel's name was taken away that honored the living God, and Belteshazzar was a name that honored a pagan deity. 
Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered, My Lord, if only this dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. What was Daniel saying? He was using high language. He was using a court language to say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I wish, I wish this wasn't happening to you. I wish God's judgment was not on you right now. I, wish, I would rather it be on your enemies. I'd rather it be on the people that oppose you. Daniel was living in true humility. Incredible humility. Let's remember what humility is, because I think a lot of us have a very skewed version of humility. Humility for today, for today's talk and for the purpose of our thinking today, is just simply treating other people as if they are more important than you. Okay? And Daniel was doing that. And I proposed that was one of the things that made Daniel, that set Daniel apart, was he was able to treat people around him as if they were more important than he was. And he didn't just do it once in a while when he felt like it, but it was a consistent part of his lifestyle. It was a consistent part of his mind. You see, when, when Daniel lived in humility, Nebuchadnezzar and the world leaders took notice. I argue that when we as a church live in humility, the world will take notice and you and the church will influence our culture. Now, I want to be clear again because a lot of us mistake humility. We think humility is being a doormat. We think humility is the, the man or the woman that's always holding the bag and is always being the one who's beaten up. Humility is not being a doormat. It's not being the person that just can't say no and is, is so morally and emotionally weak that they're abused by everyone around them. Humility is not self-abasement. What's self-abasement? Self-abasement is the guy who is the fastest runner who goes, oh, I'm not really all that fast. Or the guy who's the most power, you know, the, the, the lady who is, you know, here in the Olympics, you know, and I was watching this past week, the women's wrestling. It's not the woman's wrestler who gets a gold medal who says, oh, I'm not really all that good at wrestling. No, they are. They are. They're being self-abasing here. And that's not humility. Humility is not lying about you being good at something. Humility is being able to treat people around you as if you believe that those people are more important than you. So how do we live with the kind of humility that Daniel lives with? Because I realize my sermon could be just as ineffective uh, all, all day long if I just said, folks, be more humble. Just be more humble, please. Live with humility in your life. And you would walk away going, okay, okay, I don't know what that means, but fine. Well, let's take a look because Paul gives very good and very careful instruction to Timothy, one of his protégés, about what it looks like to live with humility in a pagan culture. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's just read this passage it's so practical for us, and it gives step-by-step -step instructions of how are we to live in the world today. It's just as effective for us today as it was some 2,000 years ago with Timothy. In verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, 
Able to teach, not resentful opponents, must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Careful reading of this. The Lord's servants. I was very quick to look at that language. What does it mean to be a Lord's servant? I'm thinking, is that, is that a calling for a pastor? Is that a calling for someone who has some kind of higher calling, some kind of deeper level? They've learned the, the, the secret handshake of the Christian faith that's a little different than the, the rank and file. Guess what, friends? No, it doesn't. The, guess what? A Lord's servant is someone who calls upon Jesus Christ to be their master. My understanding is that's what salvation is. And Paul's saying, look, if you call upon Jesus to be your master, this is how you're to act. He wasn't saying, Timothy, you want to be a pastor, then you need to do this. Timothy, you want to be a church leader, you, you got to do this. Timothy, you want to be an elder, then you got to be this way. He said, no, Timothy, if you're going to call upon Jesus as your Lord, this is how you are to act. Do not be quarrelsome. Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Don't get into arguments. Don't get into arguments. Boy, I can't think as it seems like in the last 18 months, thanks to social media, you know, it's so much more easier than ever before to get into arguments, isn't it? And to, you know, find yourself sharing your opinions about everything to anyone who's willing to, to read. Can, can I share this? I'm just gonna, and, I, and if I offend you, forgive me. I, it's 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 the the concussion protocol. Okay, I'm not in my right mind right now. So give me a give me a moment. Give me give me a little bit of grace here. But friend, I don't care if you're small or great. I don't care if you're uneducated or educated. No one cares what you think about opinions on anything on Facebook. So quit sharing them. Quit sharing them. Put, make Facebook what it was originally designed. Keeping everyone up to date with your, with your family uh, pictures, with your recipes that you've tried out, that you want other people to have, with your vacation photos, with maybe offerings from work and advertisements about your work. That's what Facebook was about. I don't want to know about the great dilemma of truth. I don't want to know about the latest, the latest thing that the government's trying to get through uh, behind me. I don't want to find out about some secret society that has taken the entire world over, okay? Facebook is not a place for that, and I'm going to promise you, you are not influencing anybody in your political theories or your, even your religious theories, Okay? So let's just, let's just maybe quit putting all of our opinions out there and expecting that everyone's going to go, wow, I never thought about that. Wow, I just read this opinion of, about politics, and I've, I've been a lifelong Democrat my entire life, or I've been a lifelong Republican my entire life, but I just read this meme about my guy. I've never thought about that. I, I think I'm going to change everything I've thought up to this point because of this one meme that I see on Facebook. It doesn't happen that way, friends. You want to truly influence people around you? Invest your life in those people around you and do it with humility and they will pay attention to you. But don't be just putting stuff out trying to create arguments left and right because God's people are to not be quarrelsome. That means we're not to be looking for arguments left and right. And yet it seems like 
Sadly, the church has, we, we've as people just amped up our ability to get into arguments with people around us. And oftentimes the arguments are over things that do not have eternal consequences. So just stop it. Stop it. Don't get into arguments. And then Paul continues on to Timothy and he says, but we must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Be kind to who? Church? Who are we to be kind to? I was going to say, it's not just something where you just think it in your head. Tell me. Everyone, right? Everyone. I have spent a lifetime, a lifetime trying to find out and figure out how everyone does not mean everyone. I mean, I, Dave, I've done so many language studies. I got my master's in Greek so that I could make a strong case that everyone does not mean everyone, but everyone means everyone in the body of Christ, or everyone means everyone in your family, or everyone means everyone in your community, or everyone on your city block, or everyone in your tribe. But guess what, friends? I hate to tell you this. Every attempt I've made to try to prove that everyone does not mean everyone in this passage, everyone does mean everyone. The Greek is very clear. It's very explicit. It's saying every person, do not, be kind to them. The person that is radically opposed to your agenda, everyone. The person who is radically different than you, everyone. The person who says, I hate what you stand for and I want to see you destroyed. I want to see you imprisoned. I want to see your rights taken away. Everyone, everyone means everyone. If we're going to honor the text of God's holy word here, be kind to everyone. Be able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed. Gently instructed. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to his will. You know, what helps me in humility, and hear me, friends, uh, my humility is a work in progress just like your humility is. I'm not saying I have reached the end of my journey yet. I'm not saying that I have arrived. I'm saying I'm developing just like you're developing, and I'm trying to move forward every day of my life to be a more humble leader, to be a more humble person in the kingdom of God. One of the things that helps me here is understanding and getting a look at verse 26. Why are we acting this way amongst everyone? It's to hope that those people come to their senses and they're able to escape from the trap of the devil. When we start understanding that our enemies are truly not our enemies, but they are people who are caught in our true enemy's trap, and so therefore they're in essence victims, victims of their own devices oftentimes, I can have a little bit more grace, it seems. Back to my story. The answer, and I purposely left you hanging there, the answer of what did Tony Turner do? Tony Turner respected Jarek. And Tony Turner recognized that when I'm asking to pray my religious convictions over him, 
The least I can do is say, Jarek, go ahead, practice your thing, because you know what? It has, no, I have, it has no bearing in my life. You can look at my hand and you can say whatever you believe. It's not going to cause any panic in me. It's not going to cause any fear in me. It's not going to cause me to, to second guess my faith or second guess God's word. But you, if you want to look at it, you know what? If you're willing to sit here and endure me, praying the Holy Spirit upon you and, and to come and convict you, then read away, buddy. Read away. And, you know, was, and for the record, if those of you, if some of you have an area here of weakness where you do allow some of this in your life, it's a joke. There is no power. The reason why God hates divination is because God hates it when people allow their lives to be, be imprisoned with lies. And divination is all lies and it's hucksters, okay? There is no secret power. The guy looks and he's looking at my palm and he's like, oh, oh. well, you are a person of deep conviction. I started laughing. I said, Jarek, yeah, I'm under, you knew that already. I've spent 30 minutes how I was willing to come from Missouri from my comfortable lifestyle and put myself in danger just simply to share the gospel with you. That's a person of deep conviction, dude. Come on, you got to do better than that. Well, I see here, I see you are a man who, oh, this line here, you're, and he named something, your Athenian line, oh, that's very long. And oh, that shows not only are you deep conviction, but you are a strong leader and have the ability to stand and think on your own. And I'm just like, buddy, I'm not trying to disrespect you, man. I'm telling you, I love you enough to share the gospel with you. But I'm telling you, I'm willing to stand in front of a mob of people who want to string me up because I'm sharing the gospel, I think that's, by definition, a person who can stand on their own two feet, don't you? And I'm like, how, how about this? How about my hand? Tell me something like, tell me my mom's name. Or tell me what color of hair my mom had. There you go. You can even take a stab at that, can't you? Tell me what my dad does for a living, okay? Give me some of that. And, and then maybe we'll, maybe I'll be odd or, or you know, I'll go, ooh, that's, that's impressive. He couldn't do that. And so I said, okay, hey. Now it's my turn to honor my bargain. And unlike you, I am not playing a bait and switch here. I am not, you know, trying to show you a little magic trick. I'm going to induce, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to, to invade your life. And I believe he's already engaged in some way because that's why he directed me to you. And I prayed and we prayed, we prayed heaven down on Jarek that day. But, you know, ultimately, the reason I'm sharing that story is because there was an incredible, I learned an incredible lesson about humility that day. And that I, for a moment, was like, no, you're not going to read my hand because my values and my system is, is correct and yours is wrong. Well, that's a true statement. I still stand by that. But can I have the humility to say, you know what? Let's put your system and let's put my system on trial together. You know, much like what Elijah experienced with the prophets of Baal. Let's go ahead and put both systems together. And, and you know what? I'll walk in the arena with you and let you, you give me your best to show me how your way of living, your way of thinking is correct. And then I'm going to give you my best and let's see what God does in your life as a result of that. To just even have that statement, it cannot come from arrogance for it to, to make a difference in someone's life. It has to come out of humility. And so church, I would just challenge you as we conclude today, just another reminder, we have to be people who live in humility. Friends, some of you have 
Jobs where you give oversight to other people. Humility, I'm, humility is not you going, oh, shucks, guys. You all are just as good a leader as me. You make the decision. No, that's terrible. That's, that's you abdicating the position that God's put you in. You're to lead, and I want you to lead with Christ-honoring ethics. I want you to lead out of humility, that those people who you lead live with the idea that they are just as good, if not better than you, and you treat them in such a way. Moms and dads, as you operate with your kids and, and go into the world that they're living in, live with humility. Care about the people that are around you. And if you sit back and maybe right now you just take a soul inventory and maybe the truth is you're like, Tony, I don't care. I don't care. I don't love the people around me. I don't like them even. Maybe that's where you begin that. And we begin the process of learning to love the people who are very different than us. One of the things I love about Paul and Brenda is that they are building relationships because they were connected to nightlight. They were around people who were very different than them. And to this day, they have a relationship. And in essence, they do small group life with a couple of people who are very different, people who, who were in the the, the adult industry and people that you and I would look at and go, oh, I don't want them. I don't want them around. They're, they're, they're bad people. Well, yeah, they're sinners. They're sinners. They need God's grace. And Paul and Brenda were able to operate with those two folks, with those people in humility, right, Paul? Humility to be able to say, let me do life with you. And, and the process is you experience our life, you're going to experience our God. It came because they cared about people. And if you're not willing to care about people, maybe we begin there. We start there by saying, God, help us to see these people as you see them. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you right now. Look over our hearts, God, and guide our thinking, and guide our mentality. And Lord, in this still moment, would you... Just maybe bring to mind an experience this week that maybe we did not operate with humility. Maybe something we said, something we did. Maybe it was something that we posted on Facebook or, or an email we sent to someone that just was just arrogant and arrogance at its worst. God, would you start right there in our lives to help us look at that? Give us the humility to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, for taking those harsh stances to people who I love. God, would you give us the ability to first, in our humility, to maybe say, I'm sorry, and build some bridges that we've been active in tearing down over the last few months, if not a couple of years. And Lord, would you help us when we see our neighbors, when we see our friends, when we see our family members, before we can stand in the gap for them effectively, we got to love them. And with, to love them, a strong step forward is to operate and treat them with a humble heart and a humble mind. Would you give that to your people today? Would you help us operate out of the teachings that Paul gave and shared with his friend, with his protege, Timothy? These things we pray in your son's powerful name. Amen. Thank you 
for listening to the Northbridge Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about Northbridge Church, you can find us online at mynorthbridge.org.